Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show. It is 2023, and it is also our anniversary. Yes, this show technically launched its first episode around about this time last year. It may not be exactly when the first episode went live, because time differences, and also the fact that it really depends if you consider episode 1, the true first episode, or if you count episode zero, which I know a lot of people listen to for a long time, episode zero was in my top five episodes. Thankfully, it's been superseded to the point that it's no longer in, even in the top ten, but for a long time I was like, episode zero really shouldn't be this high. What's going on? <laughs> so, for this anniversary, we're going to have a new voice on today. We have the wonderful Larry on... Larry runs his own podcast, and uh, you're going to hear us talk about it, but this episode was actually recorded a little while ago. As I said in the previous episode, there were still a couple of episodes from The Great Backlog, but we are pretty much at the end of them now. There is technically only one more to go, and that will be next week's episode, which I will talk about at the end, as always. So Larry wanted to talk about Broken Arrow, which is a John Woo-directed film starring John Travolta and Christian Slater. Which, as I believe you'll hear us discuss a little bit into the episode, for me, was easy to watch or rewatch because it was on Disney+. Plus. If you're outside of the UK, I don't believe that's true, but it might be streaming on something. We do have a conversation, I think, about that, but... This is one of those episodes where it's an hour and 47 minutes, I think, roughly, with me cutting out a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I had to cut this one down a bit because, wow, did we go off topic. Perhaps if I go on to Larry's show, we can uh, redo some of those conversations because Larry's show is all about interviewing the guest and uh, we don't really need that here. There was a lot of stuff that, whilst it was super interesting, even I was like, Nah, nah, it doesn't have a place here. So, with that said, I'm going to chuck you over to myself and Larry, and we're going to start talking about this, in my opinion, underrated 1996 classic. See you back at the outro. Alright, and here we are, live in the room. And today I'm joined with someone new, and it has taken an eternity to get this man onto the show. But like so many people that hopefully you have been listening to, uh, this is somebody that was here from day one and has been very supportive of the show. So it's very nice to finally have you on, Larry. So would you like to introduce yourself for all the boys and girls listening at home? Hi, my name is Larry Sternshine, and I do a podcast called Real Early. Uh, sorry, this is, it's really early right now, so I'm trying to wake up a little bit, which is yeah. ironic because my show is called Real Early, so. 
Yeah, you're, you're keeping it on brand. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, R-E-E-L, Real Early. And uh, this podcast, you can find on Spotify. And uh, you can go to my main Twitter account, at Double H55, or at Woovember, which is a John Woo fan site, uh, to get the link to hear episodes. I've got two out. I got a few more coming out. And I just talk to people about their experiences growing up about and how they discovered movies, the people that influenced them in that regards, uh, different video stores and movie theaters they went to. Uh, so far, I've got an episode with Rob Antiquera and Matt Essery, which your listeners will be familiar with. And oh, yes. It's been a, pretty fu- it's been a very fulfilling uh, experience doing the show so far. So I'm excited to get the rest out and then continue to do it as interview people come up and whatnot so check it out it's pretty cool um i usually do it a little later in the day so i'm a little more awake so yeah well unfortunately you could you could thank the good old time zone difference for uh this i have kind of gotten adept at trying to fit everybody in around their time zones but unfortunately we're in one of the worst ones i think the only people that are worse to try and schedule the australians <laughs> well i did i did an episode with uh someone from australia and they did theirs really early but apparently they're used to doing it so they get up they have the coffee and they're just ready to go and like she's always just on on point like every time it's amazing it's uh Lindsay wilkins from schlockenau as soon as you said that they're always early and have their coffee, I knew who you meant. Obviously, Lindsay has also been on the show. And yeah, she's great to record with. There's never any problems uh, recording with Lindsay. She makes it, all of this look super easy, which is puts the rest of us to shame. Right. So I'm just curious before we actually get into the film, like um, what actually made you decide to make that topic for your, your podcast? It's uh, a good question. One... I decided that I wanted to just do a podcast just because everyone else is doing it. So I wanted to like get in and also do one. And I had to think about what subject I want to talk about. And my original idea was a show about direct to video movies. And I also wanted to do a show by myself because I didn't want to involve another person and have to come up with that scheduling too. (laughs) <laughs> i can relate i realized though that like it's kind of hard to do uh, a show by yourself that doesn't always have a guest and i'm not necessarily one to think on my feet so i need a script so that it was just gonna be too much effort and then plus really action for everyone the podcast so we're all friends with people on they pretty much will get that covered if there's like a, a major release for DTV, they'll talk about it. So I didn't really feel like it was necessary for me to do it. But then I realized I have a lot of friends from different backgrounds and different places they live. And I was like, you know what? Let me just talk to them about them growing up because like everyone's got a different experience of how they got to where they are now. And I just thought that would be a very interesting topic because I don't see that really being discussed anywhere. So I was like pretty lucky to come up with that idea. And uh, the title actually came from a friend of mine. I'm in this group chat that's not really about movies, but I'm like, you, some of you guys do podcasts. Let's. I, I need your help. Come on with a. Oh, the dog's barking. 
Uh, it's all right. Yeah, uh, to make a long story short, basically, they came up with some ideas, and then I had an epiphany one morning. I was like, I'm up real early, real movie, real. And I was like, all right, let's do it. And then it took me like two months to record a bunch of episodes as I uh, figured this out. Yeah, man. Everybody thinks that uh, this show started at the beginning of 2022. Obviously, it's had a couple breaks, uh, not really scheduled breaks, but they've been breaks nonetheless. And uh, nah, this show started in like 2021, and it's it just took that long to get everything in place in order to launch. So that's one of the reasons why some people are like, "Oh, I can't believe how you know how many episodes you managed to get out so quick." And it's like, yeah, because they weren't done quick. They've been sat in my hard drive for months. That's why. <laughs> so uh, yeah, welcome it, to the club. It's the editing part that I was like, I don't know how to do that. So I'm getting a little better at it, though. Yeah, man. Once you get it down to a a, a science, it becomes a lot easier. Like, I know some of our friends, they have, like, a formula that they just do. Like, they don't even listen back to the episode. And I, I'm not at that point yet. I listen back to everything because I know there's stuff that will slip through the net. So I'm a, I'm a bit more um, finicky when it comes to editing, which sometimes is the reason why I end up taking these unscheduled breaks. But people don't seem to mind, so... Fingers crossed it won't be an issue going forward. But yeah, I'm super excited for your show. I'm really curious to see where it goes. I think it's a great idea personally. Like one of my favorite aspects of having people on is talking to them about their own experiences. You know, as I said in my intro episode, I didn't expect to have guests every episode. There are episodes I'm now specifically doing where it's just me, but I don't need to. Like I, I was so blown away with the amount of people that wanted to come on that still want to come on that want to come back. And yeah, I, I loved it, what you just said, like, oh, I'm just going to do it for myself so I don't have to worry about scheduling. Yeah, see how long that lasts. <laughs> well, I, I'll also say, too, part of the reason I did uh, start my own podcast is so I can be invited onto other people's podcasts, too. So it's kind of like a tit for tat kind of thing. Like, it, there's a bit of a selfishness involved with doing this. Oh, that's interesting, because uh, you've been on Lindsay's show before, right? Because I'm pretty sure I've listened to an episode where you, you were on talking about movies. Yeah, I've I've done two shows with her. There's uh, Cinema Drunkies I've been on. The House of Screams podcast I've been on the most. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's a little bit of a selfishness just because I want to be able to talk to all these different people about stuff. Like, I get a little jealous sometimes with shows that I listen to a lot, and there's friends on there. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get on there too um but also i want people to come on my show too because you know people like to to talk about themselves and it's also a great tool to get their their name out there and whatnot so it's kind of like a it's it's a good thing for for everybody it's a win-win-win as they say exactly win-win but uh not to turn this into a talk show uh let's actually tell people what we're talking about obviously everybody's listened to the intro and has see the title of the episode already knows that we're here to talk about broken arrow but i one thing that i won't have said in the intro is that this was actually your pick so would you like to share why it was your pick no i, I chose broken arrow because it's directed by john Wu, and my first ever appearance on a podcast was with rob antiquera and Mac the All-Star on the Cinema Drunkies show. And I was talking about Hard Target. And I was like, I kind of want to do his American movies in order. But then I did an episode on Mission Impossible 2. 
for another podcast called Mission Impotable. So I'm not going quite in order, but I wanted to talk about as American movies because those are the easiest ones available. And I think they're very interesting how he was able to take his Hong Kong sensibilities and translate them into America. And I just figured what better person to talk to about Broken Arrow than you and the show. And I also think it's actually a, one of his more underrated films. I used to not like it as much. Uh, I mean, I always liked it, but I like it a lot now more than I used to. And I think a lot of that is just because there's been a lot of time between when this came out and now and action movies and theaters have changed so much that a lot of those 90s movies actually hold up much better now. So that's why we're doing this. Yeah, 100%. Uh, people that listened to mine and Mike's episode on Time and Tide will know that we had a similar conversation where uh, we were talking about, you know, the 90s was an era where action films were just being pumped out at a ridiculous, unsustainable rate. And unfortunately, they did kind of uh orchestrate their own demise there was just so much of it that that's part of the reason why it kind of collapsed under its own weight and you know now we have films like tiger claws being put out by niche labels and this really nice set and it's tiger claws like this was not a classic of the 90s but these sorts of films as you just said they don't get made like that anymore like what used to be something of which there was an overflowing waterfall of content, it's now a drought. And it's been a drought for like 20 years. Yes, there are some films that have kind of tried to fill the void, but compared to what it used to be like, nah, it's it's never going to be like that again. They've had their time. And unfortunately, like Stallone himself has said, action films got replaced by superhero films and the big budget thrillers, you know? They just evolved into something different. And that's true of all film evolution. If you look back through the eras, there's always been one dominant type of film for every decade. And that's never going to change and doesn't really come back around. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to see like the Westerns return and be the kings of cinema again. Just like I'm sure, unfortunately, we won't for the pure muscle bound action heroes of the 80s. But they never really go away. You can always find them somewhere. And Bringing it back around to Broken Arrow, obviously, as you said, Hong Kong's influence on the action movie cinema world is not to be understated. And Wu coming across and starting to make American films with fairly big American actors. Obviously, we can debate how big of an actor Travolta and Slater are. But at the time, I think it's safe to say that it's a pretty big deal. And although everybody probably remembers him mostly for Face Off, as far as his American films go, I agree with you that he made some pretty good films in general. I hadn't actually watched this film in a long time. Like, I don't think I've seen this film since I was a kid. So it was almost the same as basically watching it for the first time because I remembered bits and pieces of it, but most of it, nah. But I really enjoyed this film. Uh, it was funny because there were so many points where I was just like, oh yeah, now it's turned into a John Woo film. <laughs> like, But there were, other, there were other points where it was like, this actually feels a bit more tame compared to what he would do in Face Off and what he's done in other things. And I don't know, you're, you're the Woo expert. You tell me, how Woo is this? I mean, it's definitely on the lower end. It's maybe as far as action, but there's a lot of themes in this movie that he uses uh, a lot in his earlier films. For example, if you take um, the killer, the Charlie Infant and Dan Lee characters, while they do start being 
against each other and then they become closer as the movie goes. Uh, it's still two people from opposite ends having the conflict where in, in Broken Arrow, they start off as friends, but then there's that conflict and they're definitely from two different sides of the coin, same coin, kind of like the killer. So he's very familiar with sort of that uh, issue in, in his films. And that's what makes Broken Arrow probably the most John Woo of that particular movie. Um, but there's also a lot of different things. You see a lot of his action scenes are in this. There's slow-mo, two guns a couple times. Um, there's the Mexican standoff thing where <laughs> people are pointing stuff at each other. Uh, and it, I think this one has one of the cooler ones uh, that we'll get into a little bit more as we go on. But yeah, that's that's the big thing with Broken Arrow is that sort of relationship between the two main characters and how they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I really like this film's opening with the boxing. Uh, I, I totally forgotten that they were like both boxes and considering, you know, it comes from Wu. The fact that they chose to have them be in such a grounded uh, sport rather than be, you know, flamboyant martial artists like you might expect, I thought was a nice decision. And uh, Travolta, even though, you know, in the beginning, he's supposed to be a quote unquote good guy, like the audience isn't supposed to know he's going to be the bad guy. It's like, from the word go, he just can't help but play the character as a bit unhinged. And you're just like, yeah, someone's not quite right in this guy's head do you know right in fact uh i talked about this on my twitter my november twitter account and you could definitely tell that this is the prototype of the performance in face off because he's doing a lot of that same kind of weird uh movements and the way he kind of talks and he's kind of working that out which when you watch face off after this you can totally see that john travolta and john Wu like had this trust with each other and uh if you watch some of the making of they talk about that how they trust each other and when you see face off you're like okay they like they knew exactly what kind of character he wants to play in that one because they had gotten to play around with different ways of being a villain and broken arrow so it's also what makes this movie kind of interesting is to kind of see the them evolving the actor and director relationship into face off. Yeah, uh, that that's exactly what was going through my head is I could see a lot of the face off mannerisms coming through in his performance as Deacons. And it just it made me chuckle because he is so like OTT compared to everybody else, at least to, to begin with. But he's also trying to like convince everybody that he's still holding it together and then you know as the film goes on you see the back and forth where how much of him is unhinged and how much of it is just an act and it's like no 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 by the end you're like nah he's unhinged like there is definitely some broken wires in this film about a broken arrow i think one of the keys to realizing that he's a villain is how he holds that cigarette he's got that really weird he's like in the middle two fingers that mm -hmm. he's holding it and he's kind of got this flamboyant sort of way of holding that cigarette and then i just think that particular acting choice you just i don't know i don't think you can trust the guy who holds a cigarette that weird no i agree <laughs> i mean to be fair even when he's like um boxing with uh slater's character hale he's not really boxing he's just 
beating the crap out of him. Like, he knows he's won. He just prolongs it, and he kind of enjoys it. And then later on, he doesn't really mouth off to his superior officer, but he does do something that he knows will tick him off. And it's like, you kind of get the vibe straight away that he's not the nice guy that he's trying to portray himself as. Like, right from the word go, there's an underlying sense of, F all of you, I'm better than this. Which, you know, pretty much gets flat out said later on where Hale's like, you know, you just think you're good at everything and always right. And that, to me, is kind of, it's there from the second you see him on screen. Yeah. But yeah, as we go on, obviously we get the uh, the actual story of the film, which is that they're pilots. They are going out on an exercise, and for some unbeknownst reason, while doing the exercise, they have to carry real nukes, which is absolute lunacy to me. But without that, the film wouldn't work, so we're not going to worry about it. And yeah. <laughs> when uh, they are in the middle of the air, obviously Travolta reveals himself to be the villain of the film, tries to kill Hale, and. Uh, he drops the nukes off. They have a bit of a fight. It's not uh, one for the books, because obviously it's in the middle of a plane, but it definitely kind of makes you go, oh, all right, this is kind of a big plot. And, you know, it's uh, it's not a film of subtleties. It's nukes. It's big, big American military complex kind of going, oh, shit. The thing I like about that particular scene, by the way, is they do a very John Woo thing where there's a reflection behind him where you see Travolta grab the gun, and that's how Christian Slater's character knows that something's up. So he was able to survive because, like, I don't know what they would have done in, if it was any other director. He probably just would have been, like, gotten lucky that he happened to notice him do it. But I like that little touch of seeing the reflection in the in the window. So that that's what's cool about that scene. Yeah, 100%. Um I did find that funny as well. Like the only reason he's looking out the window in the first place to see the reflection is because Deacons was like, Hey, I think there's something wrong. Shouldn't that, shouldn't that be somewhere else? And he's like, look out the window. And it's like, yeah, if you hadn't have told him to do that, he wouldn't, wouldn't have actually seen you shoot him. So he kind of set himself up to fail there, which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah. Well, and it kind of shows the quick on his feet thinking of Christian Slater's Riley character too because like he knows something's up immediately they're they're doing a little scuffle and it also shows that too that riley's not going to necessarily be pushed around by deacons even though earlier in the movie with the boxing you know deacons is in control most of it that i think there's a little bit of learning and he's learning uh, from deacons earlier you know what i mean so there's a lot going on in that particular scene, even though it's a pretty quick one. Yeah. No, yeah, no, there's a lot in all of the scenes, to be honest. That's why it's sort of like, if we were to break down all of the scenes, we'd be here for a very long time. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. But uh, this film kind of has a stacked cast, because obviously it has John Travolta, Christian Slater, but it also has Delroy Lindo, Bob Gunton, Frank Whaley, even has a, a minor role for uh, Vondi Curtis Hall, which sort of made me smile and was very sad that he's not in it more. But it, it also has uh, Kurtwood Smith as uh, like the chief of staff for the president. And that made me smile because the fact that he's like a good guy in this, and I'm so used to seeing him as the asshole from Robocop. And it's like, oh, this is this is great because I love the fact that he's essentially playing the same character. But, you know, 
he's now a, like a politician. Uh, but it just made me laugh. Like, oh, uh, I keep waiting for the moment you're going to betray everyone, but you're actually a proper good guy. And I'm just not used to that. Well, it's funny. If you talk to people in the States, especially who watch the 70s show, who haven't seen RoboCop, they're always surprised whenever they see RoboCop because they're used to the dad character in that show who isn't exactly like the nicest dad character but he's not like robocop bad you know what i mean so yeah and so it's always it's always funny whenever you see an actor who you associate in one way and then you see him something else and it's just you gotta get taken aback to it yeah yeah exactly like i've never seen the 70s show i know of it and i know it's really popular but it's just not something i've ever watched so i was um curious like the fact that you've seen it and i've already just said like he's a he's an all right character in that it's like oh well there you go then so it probably wouldn't be that surprising for most people but if like me you you mostly associate him with the the character you played in robocop then yeah this is kind of a 180 yeah and there's there's lots of great character actors in this one too in like different big and small roles like uh daniel von bargain is in this too you might recognize him from Lord of Illusions and just a million other things. So I, I, I always like these 90s action movies because you see all these character actors in different roles. And this one's got a good solid amount of them. Yeah, I also have to give a, a special shout out to Samantha Mathis as well, who played Terry Carmichael, because especially in this day and age, the the strong female character archetype is one that is often hotly debated. But I actually think that that's basically what she's playing in this film, but she is a hundred percent believable. And I think it's probably one of my favorite uh, roles of hers because they managed to get that balance perfectly right as someone who's in way over their head, but is also actually pretty skilled at what she does. And there's multiple points in this movie where they wouldn't have been able to succeed if she wasn't there. Like if it had just been Hale on his own, he'd have lost. And I think people that can get that balance just right Part of it is the writing, but a lot of it comes down to the portrayal of the character. And I'm like, yeah, there you go. Why isn't this character talked more when we have this conversation about strong female characters, you know? Yeah, the... I don't know. If, well, first off, let me just go back here and just ask, have you ever seen Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis? That is a good question. Let me quickly look it up before I answer <laughs> yes or no. <laughs> so it's the, it's the one of about the high school where Christian Slater's got a, a radio show and he's uh, ticking off uh, the adults in town. Yes, I have. Uh, I've just looked it up as well. Um, I don't really remember it, uh, but I have definitely seen it. Yeah, so it's kind of if you're a fan of that movie and then you see this movie, it's kind of interesting to see because they have a very similar dynamic in that one that they do have in this one. And I think they're relationship they have in this i think helps a lot by them being familiar with each other going in yeah i think there's a, a a trust level that they have with each other that really makes that those two characters work and the one thing too that people give john Wu not much credit for really is his female characters uh they're either non-existent or they're the damsel or they just don't really do all that much. And it's nice to see a movie here where Samantha Mass's Terry character is like in on the action and she's propelling 
stuff forward. She's not just reacting like, like, oh, she's just the damsel. Like, she gets in there. She's killing dudes and, you know, very scrappy and not afraid to, to do stuff. And I, I think it's a really great uh, character. And she does a great job uh, in, in that movie. And I feel like she doesn't really get much credit. And you don't really hear about her that much anymore. But it's like, she's a really good actor, you know? So that's what I like about this movie, too, is that character and how it's so different from a lot of the other John Woo movies that he has. So, Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I was really impressed by the character, by her performance, and the fact that, as you, uh, as I said, and as you just said, you know, it's very balanced with both of them having to work together and basically be equals uh, in different ways. But they, like you said, she is a park ranger. She is skilled at weaponry. She can fight, even though she's not like marine level. But that's what kind of makes it work is, you know, Hale's a pilot. Yes, he can fight, but he's not like a special forces guy. So the two of them kind of equal each other out. And I like that. And it's not something that regardless of just talking about John Woo, it's not something that you see in films even today really where they managed to get that balance right of equaling out the share of actually getting stuff done goes to more than one character and it doesn't tip too far one way or the other you know oh yeah for sure and like you don't really know much about her character other than you can tell that she's been doing this for a while because she knows a lot of the locals and whatnot and knows the terrain and you know and is curious what's going on but also, you know, we don't have that sort of backstory where like, oh, she's really like a martial arts person or whatever. Like you, you just kind of get to learn who her character is as, as she goes. And I think what's nice, too, is that uh, the relationship that she has with Riley Hale in this is not one of like romantic like feelings towards them. There's no big kiss at the end in fact at the end of the movie they shake hands which i think is uh kind of interesting because like a lot of movies would default to these two characters making out at the end like because they went through this whole thing that somehow they're now sexually connected and i like that by going through this whole thing they're just connected more as two people that went through this this uh situation together as opposed to like you know like a romantic kind of thing and i i really appreciate that about this one you know like they're they're basically uh, equals you know and you don't always see that with male and female hero characters in movies i do think they kind of hint at the fact that there is sort of a, a romantic interest in each other but i agree that the film doesn't lean into it it doesn't become about saving the girl it doesn't become about you know the sexual attraction there is like you say a connection whether or not it would become more they they kind of leave it open-ended because yes they do shake hands but they also then sort of em embrace the hands and pull them towards the chest so you could read it either way in my opinion which is fine like if you just want to believe that they became good friends that's perfectly acceptable if you want to think well maybe there was more to it there's nothing there to really argue with it either but i i liked what you said as well in that you don't get her backstory you don't really get riley's backstory either i like the way that john woo kind of gives you 
the information you need about these characters by showing you rather than telling you. And obviously when they first meet, they're antagonistic towards each other because neither one really has a clue what's going on. Obviously, Riley just got blindsided by the fact his so-called best friend just tried to kill him and betrayed him. And she finds him in the middle of the desert, doesn't know what's going on. And so they end up having this mini battle. And at first it plays out kind of how stereotypical you might expect it to. She draws her gun. He disarms her. She is afraid, like, don't kill me. And when you think, oh, okay, so she's pretty green. But then it turns out that actually that was a ploy. She then disarms him, throws him to the ground, and she's like, yeah, the gun's actually loaded, and I'm pretty happy to just blow your head off if you try anything funny. And it's kind of like, oh, okay. And it tells you so much about her, like, oh, she can fight. And it's like, oh, okay, she's actually pretty skilled too. And Riley and the audience kind of have to go, ah, okay. I kind of underestimated her. I won't make that mistake again, you know? Yeah, and I, I love that she's the one that pulls out a knife when they're doing the Mexican standoff scene. Yes. She's got like a knife, like, you know, don't don't mess with her because she'll she'll stab you. Like she doesn't she's not afraid to do that <laughs> to do that, which I, I particularly enjoy about that one particular scene. And it also get lets you know that even though uh Hale is a pilot he can hold his own as well because obviously they both kind of at one point or another, they both have the upper hand in their confrontation. Eventually he does get the gun after he realizes that it is loaded and she is dangerous, but he obviously befriends her by basically going, well, here, have it back. And I liked that character building moment. And then they start talking and obviously he can't tell her what's happened because it's top secret, but kind of, has to do something and i like the fact that they used their time walking in the desert trying to get back to her truck which i swear she parked like 20 miles away but uh yeah i don't mean i don't know where she parked that thing but she was walking for a long time to find him but i do know they do explain that well yeah they do if they if she drives through that area she's gonna run over that old dirt Yes. Takes years to remove tire tracks, you know? So, like, they do explain the the endangered dirt. If you don't don't pay attention too much, uh, like, maybe when you first see the movie uh, back in the 90s, you're probably like, well, she's talking real far. But then you realize they do at least explain it. But it is like a weird, like, I don't know what dirt they're talking about, but. (laughs) No, I I I have no idea either. Is that real? I don't know. I mean,. I assume it must be because one of the things that I thought originally when it's like she's a park ranger and like there are other park rangers, but there's nothing there to protect. Like there's you don't see any kind of animal. There's no like big wilderness. It's just a desert. And you're like, oh, okay. well, if the dirt itself is like a, a special thing that needs protecting that in and of itself might be why there's park ranger, because, yeah, there's probably other stuff, too. But if the ground itself is like special in some way, then yeah, I wouldn't know not to walk on it. So I don't imagine most people would, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I was going to say other than I do, I do like though, that they had some time to spend talking to each other and sort of trying to figure out what's going on with those two. So, you know, there's, there are quiet moments in this movie that I really appreciate. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, 
the writer too, Graham Yost. Uh, Graham Yost is a a really good writer of this type of movie. Like yeah. he did uh, Speed, for example. Yeah. And Speed is like another just like perfect '90s action movie that that holds up today. I'm pretty um, sure he also did Hard Rain and Justified. Definitely did Justified. He did do Hard Rain. Maybe he's just like really good at writing Christian Slater characters. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely seems to have uh, a stereotype down when it comes to it. I mean, it's one of those things. I think some people are just really good at nailing down a specific type. And you're right. I think Graham just has it. I mean, he has worked on a bunch of other stuff that I liked, uh, both in film and television. So clearly he's very talented. And you're right. I think the quieter moments probably come from Graham as much as anyone else. Yeah, and I have to assume, too, uh, just looking through some of his stuff, like he feels like the type of writer that they bring in to punch up scripts. Like I bet you like a lot of movies have a run through from Graham Yost, uh, which I don't know for sure, but it just feels that way. Yeah, no, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the the speed script in general, the way I understand it has, you know, the the more I've looked into that, mess the more it's like i don't i think there's a lot of contention from certain parties as to who actually technically owned and wrote it and how many different people were brought in to rewrite it and turn it into different projects um so yeah he, he probably is someone that's brought in all the time to be like yeah this is an okay script now make it a great script <laughs> i feel like the one person to ask about speed would be mike scott he that's like his favorite movie yeah but um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> moving on, uh, we then get introduced to the rest of the bad guys. The military sends out a search and rescue party. And uh, that in and of itself is nice just to see that there is like proper procedures in place. We also see the reactions of the war room back in the White House and all the generals freaking out and the chief staff freaking out and i'm pretty sure that he was the chief of staff even though for some reason that's not how he's credited when i looked it up but i'm gonna keep calling him the chief of staff because it makes more sense in my head the only thing i i did think was weird is once they officially declare the situation a broken arrow that there are lost nuclear warheads out in the wild uh, I love the fact that they just don't ever seem to involve the president. It's like, at the beginning, it's like, should I wake the president up? It's like, nah, it's just two lost nuclear warheads. It's not that important. Let him sleep. And then oh, later... It happens a lot. Yeah. And then later on, they like start having him on the phone. And it's like, maybe, maybe he would just phone it in. I don't know. But, in, you know, in other stuff, it's like the second anything happens that involves like the military being gathered in the war room the president comes in and sits in the top seat and it's like, but you know, nuclear warheads being launched. Now nah, that's, that's not worth his attention. You know, <laughs> I did find that a bit funny. Yeah. And I, one of the th things I like in movies and somebody call it, uh, what do they call it? Uh, oh, I forget. I forget the, the name he, this person used, but it's basically when a bunch of people who are good at their jobs, try to come up with a solution to fix a problem. And that's what I like about this movie. You've got that sort of thing behind the scenes. And you see that in a lot of other movies, like uh, Under Siege is similar to this one, where you've got the military, Pentagon people trying to figure out what to do. You have people on the ground trying to figure out what to do. And uh, I kind of like 
the idea that this is a lot bigger than just uh, a diehard situation where there's all stuff. I mean, this pretty much would technically affect the whole world if they were to actually set off a nuclear weapon. So there's people who are trying to uh, solve it. And then there's people trying to stop them from solving it. And that's one of the reasons why I really like uh, this movie too, just from that perspective. Yeah, it does a great job of selling how big the problem is. You get so many people involved. I also like the fact as well um, that the majority of the time, everybody kind of holds it together in terms of acting professionally. Um, Deacons manages to leave a transmission to make everybody believe that Hale lost control of the plane and that that's why it crashed. That's why they, they jumped ship. But obviously that's not true. But what I like is in other films, especially if this had been made in the 80s, for example, I can see a version of this where everybody in Washington would spend more time trying to assign blame and make sure that everybody knows it wasn't their fault. It, you know, the fault squarely lies on the pilot. It's, this is Hale's fault and Hale's going to pay. None of that exists in this film. It's just, oh, Christ, this has actually happened. Everybody implement the procedures that we have in case of this. Doesn't like there's at no point do they go who's to blame whose fault is this they just go we need to rescue those pilots and we need to recover those warheads and it's like yes people that actually look like they know what they're doing and you think this is why they have these jobs it's like that's actually kind of refreshing you know oh yeah for sure you know and then like I I also really like uh, Frank Wally's character um, I've always been kind of a fan of his uh, he's kind of like shows up in lots of different uh, movies yeah. Um, and I just kind of like he's sort of the a surrogate for the audience where we kind of learn to what, at least in this movie, the, the military would do to try to figure out what's going on. Even though when you learn a little bit more about this kind of stuff, most of this is bullshit. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like the term broken arrow isn't really a term used for lost nuclear weapons or whatever but like real life is not as exciting as movies anyway so it doesn't bother me as much uh if any of this stuff isn't real because they establish it in the movie as something that's real and i think i like when they have characters like that that are able to be that surrogate to kind of teach the audience what exactly is going on what they could be doing what not could be doing so then it will work through the movie when you can so you don't start wondering like oh well this doesn't make sense or why would they do this like they actually explain it which i i really appreciate about this movie you know and then they just have some good dialogue too yeah uh that helps like um a lot of funny lines in this movie a lot of like smart little quips and whatnot so it's uh that's why another reason why I like this movie that maybe you might not get as much in movies today. And again, they don't really do action movies like this anymore. Um, obviously, there's a lot more like superhero movies and a lot of the stuff is going direct to video with lower budgets and whatnot. Uh, I was actually watching one of the making ofs last night. There was a 
the HBO did one when it was first coming out. And there's a lot of behind the scenes footage of how they shot the action scenes. And what's great about this movie versus something that might happen today is it's all on location stuff. There's some green screen, there's some CGI, but it's mostly just they're on an actual moving train doing actual stunts on the train. Uh, whereas I was going to mention this earlier when you were talking about this particular subject, I was thinking of Raging Fire. Now, Raging Fire is an action movie from Hong Kong that they don't really make as much anymore either. And if you look at that behind the scenes stuff, there's that whole uh, sequence near the end on the streets and the shootout and the, and the car chases are like on like an empty street somewhere, with like giant green screen. And like half of that stuff isn't even like real where broken arrow, like they're using real trains and stuff. And you just, you can feel that a lot more uh, in these nineties action movies. And they've got, like million stunt dudes and there's like all like like everybody is just like on point and they have to work with each other to make sure that all the stunt people are safe and so like when Hale is riding underneath the train they actually had Christian Slater underneath the train while it was going like 20 miles an hour like they do that now that have been CGI everything would have been cool but like there's that like disconnect of like when it's not actually being done versus CG where like it makes it more thrilling. And I think that is the other reason why like you see a movie like Broken Arrow now, it just feels more real. And that's why when they're talking about like what a Broken Arrow is and these characters doing stuff, everything just feels more real. You know, that's why I think this movie works for me a lot more now than it did maybe when I first saw it and then also too, it works better now when like at the time I was like, I'm used to John Woo movies where there's all sorts of like hard boiled type action or even like hard target with like that end scene with all the jumping around the two guns and whatnot. But like I watch it now, I'm just like the action in this one is even more grounded than what you see now and whatnot with all like the actual practical effects. Uh, so that's uh so that's why the movie works because it's all very real. So when they're talking about the stuff, it all feels very real. And that is, that is my rant about the movie, how real it feels. No, a hundred percent. I agree. I think that realism is always a tricky topic when you're talking about films, because ultimately they're not real. Like that is the end of the statement. The trick is how real do they feel to the audience? And I feel like sometimes, like you you said it at the very beginning of what you were saying, like you know more about the reality of this situation now than you did when you first saw this film. But I'll wager that 90% of the audience watching this, that isn't something that majority of people probably are familiar with in any way, shape or form. And so... If the film provides a realistic, believable description of what could have happened, you know, in, in 96, obviously it would be slightly different now anyway, but you can buy into it. And then you add in the fact that a lot of the effects are practical and that a lot of the things you're seeing is real, uh, in inverted commas, like they were performed by actual people. They were done on location, which makes a huge difference in whether or not you buy something, uh, not to get uh, off topic but obviously 
there's a huge debate going on right now about the 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 big screens that Disney is using for like Star Wars and Marvel and whether or not they actually are believable in terms of buying into them like they're supposedly the next generation of green screen but there are so many people that hate them with a passion because you're essentially just looking at a flat image with your actors in front of them and some people hate them more than green screens now i'm not going to get into that debate because that's not what we're talking about however the fact that these are actually shot on location kind of do highlight the fact that you're never going to be able to replicate actually filming somewhere on location but at the same time, this film only had a budget of $50 million. And I say only like that's pocket change. It's not. But if this film was made today with the same caliber of actors and the ridiculous amount of action and explosions, this thing would be hundreds of millions of dollars and no studio would fund it. And you'd never get insurance to hang someone like Christian Slater off the back of a train going 20 miles an hour there's no way that they'd get insurance for that so it would be cgi it would bring the cost down it would be safer people would be happy to fund it and it would probably do just as well because the average moviegoer wouldn't have this to compare it to and i think that is the problem like you're absolutely right this looks a lot better and now it stands out because everything that is made today not necessarily even by choice, kind of has to use CGI or green screens or whatever technique they have to use to sell the idea that they are somewhere that they are not. And back in 96, this was the way it was done. Like CGI hadn't properly taken off yet. The computers weren't quite at the point where they were going to be the dominant force in any kind of effects. I mean, so many people believe that they can spot CGI. I'm one of those people. I, I used to be one of those people, and I and I can within reason. However, you'd be well, you wouldn't, but a lot of people would be surprised at how many things that they assume are real in modern day films is actually CGI. Because yes, you can tell when something is CGI that is obviously CGI, but can you tell that the background is CGI? Can you tell that the objects in someone's hand is actually CGI? Like CGI gets used for so many stupid things now that you just wouldn't think of because from the point of view of a producer, it's easier. Why, why reshoot the scene? We can just change the fact that this guy was holding a, a ball into a brick for just a random example from Spider-Man No Way Home. You know, it looks stupid when you actually look at it and realize that the hands don't actually match the shape of what they're holding, but it's a five second scene. No one's going to really notice it. And yeah, there's thousands of little things like that that go into films. Whereas back in this film's era, you had to just film it and live with it. And that was what you used. And that meant you had to actually plan it, practice it, rehearse it and get it right which is something that unfortunately has been lost with the passage of time. Well, it was funny. Last night when I was watching Broken Arrow and there was the scene where he's holding, well, he's underneath the train. And my first thought was like, was thinking about Tom Cruise and how Tom Cruise is like one of the few actors that will uh, be able to make a movie on location doing a stunt like this with a bunch of people in the stunt crew that are professionals that can do this crazy stunts that he does look real safe. 
that you don't really see a lot from these a lot of other movies. Um, and watching this one in like 1996, I was just like, they did that sh- that stuff all the time in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like yeah. people doing all sorts of crazy stunts, and it just stands out more now because one is Tom Cruise, and he hasn't aged in the last 15 years, and he's doing all he's like hanging from skyscrapers and stuff versus you know that's the only one that gets to do that kind of stuff and here in the 90s even on like lower budget like direct-to-video movies they were able to do that uh have crazy stunts like that and i think the other problem is movies nowadays that want to be more action-oriented that are direct-to-video they have no money they have no shooting time, whereas Broken Arrow had months of shooting time. Like, they had time to actually do stuff. Yeah. And I think that's the problem nowadays is the movies that are getting the money to have the time are like the like a superhero movie or whatnot that will probably need to have a lot of computer-generated stuff just because, I mean, you're not going to make a set like... Uh, but you see like another planet or whatever, like that just wouldn't quite work. But like, you don't get the action of the time that they, they used to have. So that's why they do a lot of that CGI things that kind of look kind of funky and whatnot, you know? So like, like I miss the, I, the old days of when people had more than two weeks to make a movie. You know? Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm going to rewind a bit and then I'm going to come back to everything you just said, because these, these are all great points. So the, the the first thing I wanted to say is like Tom Cruise is a an example that everybody always uses when they're like, oh, Tom Cruise does his own stunts. Tom Cruise makes these uh, massive, huge action films. Why doesn't anyone else do that? Well, the reason no one else does that is because Tom Cruise makes the films where he does all of those crazy stunts. The person he asks to ensure himself is himself. <laughs> he he, there's nobody else he has to go to because it's his production company that makes the Mission Impossible films, that makes the Jack Reacher films, that makes whatever the thing is where he does something crazy. He's the one paying the bills, so he can decide if he wants to take the risk and you know break his leg jumping out of a building and not quite making the landing. Whereas Henry Cavill, who was obviously in one of the latest Mission Impossible films, he did the majority of his own stunts but they both have a scene where they jump out of a plane. And obviously Tom Cruise did that. He did the skydive. And Henry was like, hey, if you're doing it, I'm doing it too. Like, I'll, I'll do it. And Tom was like, nope, can't afford to insure you. I can do it because I'm the one in charge. But you can't. End of discussion. And that's unfortunately the reality for a lot of people is even if they want to do it, they're just not allowed to because they, you know, people won't take the risk that they'll injure themselves and shut down production and people will lose money. And ultimately. That's what it's all about. If you lose the money, they're not interested. And if there's even a 1% chance that somebody might mess up and then they'll lose money, because let's face it, it's not about keeping people safe. It's about if they lose money. All you have to do is Google the horrific injuries some of the stunt people have suffered and then just been abandoned to know it ain't about keeping people safe. It's about if you can make money. Cough, cough, Resident Evil, cough. But with what you were saying about shooting times, I remember... Uh, someone, and I can't remember who it was. I want to say it was uh, Lauren Avedon, actually, but it might not have been. But someone on a podcast actually said, like, back in the 90s, they were doing a direct-to-video action movie, and one 
of their fight scenes that they had like took three months to choreograph practice rehearse and shoot they had three months just for one of their fight scenes and this film is a full-on martial arts action film cut to scott adkins having like an afternoon to basically do all of that in the space of six hours and film it somehow they still managed to make something that looks just as good if not better but like you said they're making films for budgets of like barely a million to two million sometimes in like 20 days 19 days imagine what people that have these skill sets now could do if they were given a budget of 50 million if they had four to five months to actually get these shoots down look at look at ambulance michael bay's movie that movie didn't cost that much at all to make and a lot of that stuff is practical uh use and it just looks better you know than some of the other action movies that that come out that don't have have uh that have all the, the huge budget but like it's all just cgi like there's you know you don't need to have a, a lot of money to make a movie look good but you have to have some money you know so like could, okay so could you imagine a scott atkins movie that had 20 million dollars and um two months to make a movie like imagine what that would even look like i bet you that would be an incredible and that's no it's not a slight on the directors and people he does movies with because the stuff that they're able to do in two weeks is amazing but like i bet you they would kill to have the ambulance budget which wasn't even that much to make one of their movies like i bet you that movie would make like a ton of money for a studio too because it would look unlike anything that they see now and you know people would be like well Ambulance didn't do that well, but I think if you did more of those kind of movies, they would actually start making money, you know? So, like, I, I'm just pouring people to, like, just give people some money. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Right. So, yeah, Ambulance had a budget of $40 million, so it had $10 million less than Broken Arrow, just to, just to put that into perspective for everyone. Well, if if you do... Uh, by inflation, it's even like Broken Arrow probably costs like seventy-five million now, so it's even yeah. way less than that. And that just took place in Utah, like, like no offense, Utah is not exactly like the coolest looking state in the world. So the fact that they made it look interesting uh, with a lot of the flat mountainous—not I should say flat, but like, like it looks really good. But there's no like buildings. It's not in a city or anything like that. And you know, like imagine having that kind of, you know, that seventy-five million dollars to make an action movie now. Yeah, like, come on. I I know, but unfortunately, you know, the the, the mid-level movie in general, especially for action, kind of evaporated. I mean, Ambulance is really an anomaly. You know, there aren't many other films that are coming out at that sort of budget level being made by someone like Michael Bay. Um, and let's let's be real, I think that's the only reason that film exists is because it's a Michael Bay film. If it was, like you said, yeah, if, if that was made by, or if that had attempted to be made by any of the other directors that we both know and love in the direct-to-DVD market, he wouldn't have 
been able to secure that backing. I mean, even uh, big producers uh, in inverted commas can't get the backers these days if it's an action film. I mean, um, uh, Adi Shankar, who uh, was one of the producers on Dread and obviously he did The Grey and a bunch of other big stuff. And he also does, you know, smaller YouTube stuff. He's been quite vocal about the fact that he would love to have made a second dread and he still would love to make one now but even though it did really really well in home release the fact that it didn't do well in the box office for reasons that were nothing to do with the quality of that film means that nobody wants to put any money into it because they just look at the box office returns domestically and go nah it was a flop and yeah. end of like that's as far as anybody wants to look into it whereas it would only take five minutes to look into it to realize that there was more to that story than just, oh, it didn't make any money in America, you know? Yeah. You know, and I, I was just thinking, too, when we were talking, uh, there's a movie similar to Ambulance from 2015 called Heist. And that one is by Scott Mann. And that movie probably took like a couple weeks to film. It probably wasn't the biggest budget, even with guys like De Niro in it. But like he does a really nice job of like it takes place mostly in a bus. There's some helicopter work and things. It looks really great. And that one direct to video. And he finally gets a movie that is going to be in theaters. And it's that movie Fall. That's not even an action movie. Uh, it, I'm sure it's all green screen because I'm sure they didn't put actors that high up in the air. And like and, and that one probably didn't take that long to film either. Like, that's what they put in theaters, and they're not, like, giving him, like, $30 million to make an action movie that he's good at doing action. And I think Fall's going to be really cool, but, like, it's weird that, like, that's what they're giving them money to do. Like, a one-location movie that probably took two weeks to film that is probably was filmed mostly in a building. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's yeah. Weird. Well, it's funny, too, because, like, heist is kind of a great example of why people are so hesitant to put money into these things because even though it has you know robert de niro it has jeffrey dean morgan it has dave batista um which you'd think would be enough to get people to see it or buy it or, or maybe stream it i don't know if it's on any streaming services uh depending on what country you're in but it had a, a very small budget like barely nine million dollars worldwide it made less than four million, so everybody lost money on that one quite significantly. And you just think that's why you can't get anyone to finance these films, right there. Yeah, and that, the other reason why I think we don't see a lot of action movies anymore too is just the culture that we live in right now. Uh, for example, when was the last time a big budget cop action movie was released in theaters? Like, we're not really in the cop. Uh, mo like we don't really want to, as a society, see those kind of movies, or like, like Maverick is the exception that proves the rule that like there's not a whole lot of military action movies anymore. Um, Transformers probably has something to do with that, but like, it's just like the the way that we are as a society right now, like that's why I don't see a whole lot of these sort of '90s action movies as much, just because we don't. People don't want to see that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, like you said, a, 
a police centric action led movie which would which there's no other way of putting it would basically just be glorified police brutality is definitely not going to make money probably for a very long time i i don't even think it will ever come back into fashion to be completely honest and that's not necessarily a bad thing the military side of things i think that will come back i think that's always gone in in waves i think it's it, it gets to a point where everybody's just tired of it and i think that's exasperated by the fact that we live in a world where older films are available at everybody's fingertips through the power of streaming so instead of it being maybe like it was in the 70s and 80s where you had a string of military-esque films and then they went away for a bit when they stopped making money and then they can come back once they have you know had that bit of a refresher well you don't get that now because oh there's hundreds of them available on netflix amazon prime hbo max disney plus i mean i watched broken arrow on disney plus um because it's that's where it is in the uk i don't know if it's the same for you but no i i have to just on a quick side note i am so fascinated and that's one reason why i wanted to do my show is how things are different in different countries so like in america disney plus is just like disney movies and then broken arrow would be like on hulu yes but like where you're at disney plus gets like r-rated action movies and i'm like I just want the one service. I don't need like three different services. Well, I'll t- I'll t- I can answer that one for you right now because uh, Hulu has never existed in the UK. I don't yeah. think Hulu has ever existed in Europe either. Um, so it's stars. Now, <laughs> well, yeah, quite. So stars, which I think is basically the content that was on Hulu, that is on Disney Plus for us in the UK. Like we have tons of what i would consider adult centric uh shows and films uh on disney plus and it's all just under one banner which in my opinion i agree with you is the way it should be but on the flip side things like paramount plus they've become like a channel that you can purchase on amazon as like an extra subscription which is like ethno and there's so many of those stupid little services that have like nothing on them worth buying. But the biggest one that might surprise you, because it, it really irks me, is HBO Max doesn't exist over here in any way, oh. shape or form. Really? And that drives me insane because there's so much good stuff on it. So its content, like Peacemaker, for example, ended up on uh, television network Sky as like an exclusive thing that you can only watch through them. And a lot of stuff that's on HBO Max goes to Sky, which is an absolute nightmare because Sky is like antiquated compared to how everything else works. You know, it's an old fashioned television network, uh, satellite streaming service. Um, it's still super popular here. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's it's dying or anything. It's not, unfortunately. But it does mean that like when you guys are all saying, you know, oh, Harley Quinn is amazing. Peacemaker is amazing. Like, oh, I just watched Barry. It's like, trying to figure out where stuff goes in the uk and i imagine it's the same in europe is an absolute nightmare unless it's like a netflix thing or a disney thing sometimes amazon but again amazon can be finicky as well as can netflix but if it's a netflix original at least you can know it's going to be on netflix but yeah if it's on something like hbo or some of the other streaming services that we've never had don't have it's the wild wild west you just where it may land like um Barry is a great example. 
Uh, that's on something called Now TV. I have absolutely no idea why. One of my other friends uh, that is also into action stuff on Twitter, he just literally said the other day, like, he bought a Now TV subscription purely because of the fact that Barry's on there. And I think now Peacemaker is on there too. But it's like, you shouldn't have to buy a subscription because they essentially hold the content hostage. Because obviously you can't get these things physically anymore because they don't want you to be able to get things physically. And we are going way off topic, ladies and gentlemen. But bear with us. We will come back to Broken Arrow. Oh, it's like, it's fine. Like people need to learn this stuff. You know, like we can't let them live under a rock their whole lives. They need to know that the UK does not have HBO Max. Like that's Uh, weird. I mean, to be fair, anyone that's listened to this show or has followed me on Twitter for a while will know that I have made that a well-known fact i i detest and i'm really sorry because i i realized that uh, you might take this the wrong way but i friggin detest how americans that consume entertainment content just automatically assume it's the same for everybody else the funniest thing for me on the planet is when say a european country or even us in, in the uk we'll get a television show or a film released first before you guys and you guys lose your fucking minds and rage on the internet and it's like guys guys that's like everything that releases for us you get everything first and spoil it before i've even had a chance to know it's out it's like welcome to what it's like being not in america (laughs) well that's that's what you get from being mean to us and we had to leave. So this is all this is all goes back to when we decided to to leave Europe. Like we're still mad about it. So we're just gonna spoil all the shows before you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> interesting revenge. Very yeah, interesting. We're playing the long game here, guys. Uh anyway. Yeah. I hey, have you no heard of the movie Broken Arrow? It's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, man. Uh, I, I think I was going to do an episode on it at some point. <laughs> oh, this is this this is fun. I hope people are enjoying themselves. Oh, I'm sure they are. I, I do find it funny, though, that off air you said, oh, let's try and do a, uh, one of the shorter episodes. And I said, yeah, people don't set out to do a longer episode. It just happens. This is how it happens, my friend. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with my show with the interview is... Since it's just, you know, asking questions, I'm like, I'm trying to keep it to an hour. But, like, you know, obviously, like, if somebody has something they want to say, like, I'll, I'll, they can go as long as they need to and whatnot. You know, and it's just the way it is. If, if it's interesting, then, you know, it doesn't need to be short or long. It just needs to be the right length. Yeah. And going back to Broken Arrow, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Because we already did talk a lot about the character development, and let's let's skip to the bit where they get chased by a helicopter and blow it up, and now there's actual action stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, the action in this movie is really fun, and it's a lot more John Woo than I originally thought when I first saw the movie. Because, like I said, I grew up since like 1990 watching as much Hong Kong movies as I can get. And obviously John Wu is like the goat. And like, if you watch hard boiled, like giant fat sliding down banisters while shooting two guns and there's all sorts of just crazy action. And there's not as much of that in, uh, in broken arrow 
as some of those, but like there's still a lot of like there's a lot of movement in Broken Arrow's action scenes that you don't see as much. Uh, let's say if this was directed by just some whatever journeyman director there was, and there's the scene in the mine shaft, and it would just be uh, bad guys on one side, good guys on the other, and they might be behind behind like a barrel, and they would pop up every now and then to shoot. Whereas this one, there's different uh, cave entrances and exits, and they are trying to move around this mine to get the the drop on each one and it is edited so well that you can get the sense of geography where everybody is and i just love that there's always kind of somebody moving around to make it a little bit more exciting so like when you know they uh are able to like the so there's a great scene in, in the mind where, and this is where you, you need somebody with the, the touch of like a John Woo where he, Hale is able to jump to duck out of the way. Uh, so Travolta shoots his guy who's got a grenade that he had just pulled the pins on. So when he gets shot, he drops the grenade. Hale catches it and then throws it at Travolta and like that is totally a John Blue sensibility to to have all that extra thought into what he was going to do, which is I, I love that particular sequence. Yeah, I, I liked the mineshaft uh, fight sequence in general. I liked the build up to it. I thought the Humvee chase was great. Uh, I I also liked the one liner uh, where. Uh, Terry finds herself on the roof of the Humvee and then gets flipped over and she's on the front of the Humvee. Christian Slater's character puts the gun to the driver and he's got a gun on her and he's like, oh, I see we got ourselves like a Mexican standoff. And then uh, Slater just like, no, we don't. And just kills him and throws him out of the car, which I thought was brilliant. And then yeah, he, Tra- he smashes his face into the uh, console and then throws him out the door. Yeah, and then Travolta's just runs him over, like doesn't care that his man's just been thrown out. And I thought that was brilliant. And it just made me laugh so much because, yeah, in so many other films, the hero would be like, "Oh, I can't, I can't risk her life," and he's like, "Nope, not having, not having time for that." <laughs> yeah, that whole I I put that whole sequence up on my November account because I just love how. That is uh, a, a sequence where, okay, so you know Hale's going to go in, but I love that Samantha Mathis, Terry character, is like, you know what? I want to I wanna help him out too because this is like a bad situation, and she gets herself in there, so she's jumping on the Jeep. But I just love how like they both work together to get the nukes away from the Travolta character. And that's why I really like the that I love a buddy uh, action film, and this one is a great buddy action film because they both play off of each other in the action as well as the dialogue. But like this whole scene is great, where like he gets uh, thrown off the truck and he's being dragged, and then he's getting chased by Travolta. He runs, jumps into the the trunk, the trunk of the Humvee because it's John Woo. She throws him the gun, so he grabs the gun while jumping and then it's able to turn around shoot like 
like people are always like well this is not quite like a john woo action film but like if you look at it it's like this is a hundred percent john woo action stuff you know it's like it's amazing he's such a brilliant mind to come up with stuff like somebody else would not have done the throwing the gun thing but he he's done that a few times and it's other than like the untouchables like nobody seems to ever do stuff like that and i i just think it's genius and there's so much john woo in this action in this movie a lot more than i thought when i first saw it that uh i just think it's the action is like great i think it's super good in this movie i think it's because as we discussed uh quite some time ago now the the film has a grounded feel to it and i think that maybe overrides your thought process of is this a john woo-esque movie and yeah it is um yes there are points where the film tries to go in a bit more of a realistic grounded direction but it's not it's not realistic at all as we said right at the beginning and once the action really kicks off it it goes into the the woo-ness for want of a better phrase because it's stylistic it's it's stylish in a lot of the ways that the characters move the characters shoot as we said when they get into the mine shaft slater takes uh, samantha's gun and now he's wielding two pistols. And I even made a note like, ah, it took a while to get there, but main character's now got two guns. And sure enough, here comes the slow motion. He's firing it off and the other guy's got a shotgun. And it's like, now I feel like this is a John Woo movie. Like the that particular whole sequence, as you already said, like everything about that feels like a John Woo movie. But a lot of the stuff that led up to that with the creativity the back and forthness it's all still john woo it's just being put through a different lens and i think a lot of people on both sides of the fence maybe didn't interpret that in the same way and perhaps if they rewatched it now they would i mean i know loads of people watch this film anyway so it's not like this film doesn't have fans but i think that the the people that want realism out of action films wouldn't like it because john woo does everything really stylishly which is my preference i do like realism in films but it's like i like the balance of both like i want films i want one film to be just completely over the top and very really stylish and then the next film can be pure realism pure tactical accuracy you know i'm up for both but i think this film does a really good job of walking that line where some of it feels like it could happen and then you get the other stuff that is just slow motion, bullet time, bang, 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 big boom. And the fact that they're dealing with nuclear weapons is brilliant because I love the recurring line from John Travolta that he has to constantly remind his men, will you please do me a favor and stop shooting at the thermonuclear warheads? And it's like, I love the fact that he has to tell people, you know, there's nukes there, right? Stop Apparently. shooting at them. <laughs> it's just like... I'd love how stupid they are, you know? Yeah, uh, that that line's great. Um, there's a lot of great bits of dialogue in this movie. Um, but the, the one thing I do want to bring up about the dialogue, there is an, an unfortunate line in this movie that became famous uh, for very different reasons. Uh, the, the line in, near the end, when Travolta says, yeah, ain't it cool? And because of that line, that's where we got the the website called Ain't It Cool News. 
it's all because it's all because of Broken Arrow. And when you look back at the in a cool news thing, it's like it's I I don't know. There there's a there's a podcast about it that uh deals with that whole thing and it's it's whatever, but I blame Broken Arrow though, unfortunately, for that website. <laughs> To be fair, I don't think that's really a fair uh, thing to, to give to the film. Like, the people that run that website would have just found something else. Like, you know, it was only the, the, the tagline that they used. Um, I can't really offer any comment. Like, if, if there are people out there who have no idea what we're talking about, there is a website that used to be called Ain't Cool News. It was not a great place to work. It covered, obviously, pop culture and film news and stuff like that. I never read it. I never even heard of it until people started kicking off about it. So I, I, I literally know nothing about the situation other than what... Uh... Moving on! <laughs> so yeah, Broken Arrow. Oh my god. Right, where did we get... What were we talking about? We took it at the action. The action was good. Characters are good. Um, I don't want to break down like every single scene in this. However, I will say that I did enjoy uh, that whole section. I also enjoyed the fact that one of the military guys that they sent in turned out was also a traitor that had been paid by deacons. He actually had brought in tons of men that, you know, he wanted because he trusted them. He knew them, whatever the case was. And later on, we get a brilliant line and a, a dialogue between him and Hale where it's like, you know, I was considering cutting you in, but I didn't. And he was like, well, because you were afraid I'd say no. And he was like, God, no, I was afraid you'd say yes, you'd mess this up. You're an idiot. You're useless. And that's not what he says dialogue wise. But I love the implication that he's just yeah. like, really getting inside his head. Like, why in God's name would I want you? Like, that's why I just was going to kill you because you're just useless at everything. And there is this like, weird, underlying theme that is He's trying to like make him feel inferior and like he, he calls him several derogatory remarks that I won't repeat on the show. But it's just one of those things that it really does feel like of its time. I can definitely see if they did that today that that, that whole sort of storyline just wouldn't be there, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I do like, though, that at some point Hale starts uh, turning the tables too on uh deacons using uh, his own words and whatnot too which is i i always appreciate you know uh when it's not he's not just winning based off of fisticuffs he's also winning based off of stuff that he's learned from deacons you know and then like at that end sequence uh right uh when they finally have their big face off uh i like how they have hail win because of based off of dialogue in the very beginning of the movie when they're boxing, when he says that he prefers uh, martial arts movies, and then he ends up whipping Deacon's ass using martial arts. Uh, I like that sort of, that whole thing, you know, because he's using kicks. Uh, yeah, yeah. In addition to his punches, and, and Slater looks awesome throwing that stuff, and I kind of wish he would have done more uh, action movies than he did, because I, th I thought he was very... Um, legit looking and everything he was doing so that's that that whole fight at the end is like really well done um and then it ends with 
probably one of the most satisfying villain deaths I've ever seen in a movie. Like that whole thing is just brilliant. Um, Cause like he doesn't just die. He just gets, he gets blown the fuck up and it's just like, there's no like doubt about it. He's like, he's dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. He, he wasn't coming back for the sequel. (laughs) No, I, I appreciate movies that have a beginning, a middle and end. They're not setting up a sequel or nothing. They just blew him up. And like just the way they do that with uh, Slater jumping out of the train uh, while hitting the button to get it to turn on. And then the train crashes and it runs in him. And then he gets up and he has that great moment where he's, he knows he's lost while the bomb's coming at him. And it <laughs> shoots him through the, the back of the train car into a bunch of other stuff and just blows up. And it's just... That is like one of the best villain deaths. Like, cause like you, you watch a lot of action movies, you're like, okay, well, the, the, the villain demise isn't as cool as everything leading up to it, but this one definitely is top tier, one of the greatest villain deaths of all time. A hundred percent. Like, I think a lot of films underestimate how important it is to have your villain go out in a way that you remember. Like, especially if they've been uh, particularly nasty assholes or they've been in control of the situation the whole way, the death needs to reflect how much of a pain in the ass they've been to the hero. And I mean, this guy, you know, not that we've talked about it, but I'm, I'm going to mention it now. Like he set off a nuke in the middle of America. Yes, Hale managed to put it underground and somehow the copper in the mountain was able to essentially absorb it so that it didn't explode everywhere and the radiation didn't go out, which there is some science behind that, but I'm not getting into that. But I love the fact that this is a guy that is so unhinged that at the end, when he realizes he's probably going to be beaten, he's just like, oh, to hell with it, and sets the nuke for a like a five-minute timer. And he's like, well, oh, well, if we're going to lose, then everybody else is going to lose too. And it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. Going back to what I said right at the beginning, this guy is definitely not wired together, right? To the point that his own men start turning on him when they realize he's actually going to detonate a nuke with them all, like, point-blank range. Doesn't really help or succeed, but they try. And then, obviously, we get the big fight, and like you say, he gets impaled by his own nuclear warlord and then explodes. It's obviously been disarmed, so it's not a nuclear explosion. But I think that that perfectly fit the bill. And it made me think of one of my favorite quotes from the from outtakes, which is uh, Chris Tucker in Rush Hour 2, uh, one of the outtakes after they've kicked the villain in that film off from the top of the high rise building and he falls and just splats on the ground. And in the outtakes, he goes, damn, he ain't going to be in Rush Hour 3. And I think if a if a film makes me think of that quote, it's like, oh, yeah, the villain died well. <laughs> Oh yeah, he's he uh yeah, it's one of it's one of the all time greatest uh villain deaths. And uh when you were talking about uh his own men turning on him, I just wanted to briefly mention that I think Howie Long was actually a good choice for that particular role because like it's not like he needed him to do a whole lot of great acting. But like he's just like a big dude that definitely looks like he can uh whoop some butt. And like I could see why he'd want him to be like his right hand man, and I thought he did a really good job. And I thought that was actually really good casting. He is the body type that I think when people hear the word marine, 
that's the sort of physical body type that they're imagining. Yes. It's like the big biceps, the perfectly tone and cup uh, physique, but you know, the arms are bigger than most people's heads. And I think he, like you said, was perfectly cast as that role. It sounds derogatory, but it's not how I mean it, but he does look like a meathead. And I think that's yeah. what most people are imagining when they think of like the low level grunt Marines, regardless of the accuracy of that stereotype. That is, I think what most people imagine and he just fits the bill perfectly. Yeah. So I, I, I do. I mean, I think that was a little bit of a stunt casting probably too, just cause he was you know, a football guy and doing the pre football shows here in the States and. He ended up making a couple of movies, or maybe just one movie that I have—I've never seen Firestorm, but um, he had a certain presence about him that I thought made that particular character pretty cool. Hundred percent. Like considering it comes down to basically just him and Travolta uh, left, like of all of Travolta's men, I think it was well cast to sort of set him up, like you say, as the right hand man, and then the fact that he is the one that tries to essentially betray deacons because he doesn't want to die which is an understandable reaction um and then obviously he gets yeeted from the train by uh, christian slater before yeah. he can actually do anything is just perfect um but also i want to give a shout out to uh sean tube who played max because max has one of my favorite um twist reveals uh possibly ever just because uh, i am also a tech person uh, in general and I love the fact that he looks like and plays your typical helpless tech dweeb, in inverted commas. And, you know, he's the one that's programming the nuke. He's handling all of the equipment. He requisitioned all of the supplies. And then uh, Samantha Mathis's character tries to sneak up behind him and, like, knock him out. And then he just catches it, beats the crap out of her, and then is like, yeah, I bet you thought I was just like the tech guy, right? Well, spoiler... <laughs> I'm actually a U.S. SEAL. And I'm like, oh, okay. Obviously, she does eventually beat him more by luck than judgment. But I just love that twist where it's like, again, there's a lot of assumptions that people make or might may make anyway. And I think that was entirely deliberate. Like, you make so many assumptions about Terry. You make assumptions about the pilots. You make assumptions about the men. Uh, Frank Whaley's character, Giles. And yeah, I mean, even Bob Gunton who was playing the bad guy, you know, uh, he gets killed by Travolta because he just ticks him off so much, but he's the one paying for everything. He's the yeah. one that hired them. And so, yeah, like all of your assumptions that you might make about these characters, like who's going to live, who's going to die, what roles they play, they really try and play with them so that it's not just your stereotypical good guys versus bad guys. For sure. And the other thing this movie does really well is they blow up helicopters so great in this movie like there's at least like four blown up helicopters in it so yeah yeah there are actually i hadn't even tweaked that how many times they blow up a helicopter i wonder if i you know what i there's a, a a website that just deals with exploding helicopters and i should ask them what movie has the most exploding helicopters because this one has to be up there speaking of exploding helicopters though the one thing i don't like in this movie is how they do Delroy Lindo dirty. Do you know what? I have the exact same comment in my notes. I was literally just going to bring that up since you were talking about exploding helicopters. Continue. <laughs> yeah, I I watch it now, and especially now that I know who Delroy Lindo is more now than when I first saw it. 
but it's just like it's real depressing that like he just gets killed and exploded in the helicopter and like I feel like earlier in the movie they talk about how like he's a like a smart guy that's really good at catching trying to catch them and whatnot and I just feel like they should have done something where he was able to you know help them more instead of just being jobbed out near the end and you know what I mean like they set him up to do stuff and then he doesn't actually get to do cool things I feel like I really wish it would have just been some like generic white dude as opposed to like the great Delroy Lindo <laughs> as that character you know yeah a hundred percent like I I thought the sap at the end where Slater and Lindo go in the helicopter to you know save Terry and stop the nuke because they realize that actually they've been played again the smart character of Deacons actually left a false red herring to point them into the wrong direction but Slater's character eventually figures it out and has to basically convince uh Max which is Delroy Lindo to not follow orders and also appeals to the fact that you know he got this civilian woman involved and it, you know their responsibility is to not do that basically so it's kind of on them to get her out and he agrees even though they sort of toy with the idea that he won't which i really like like they set him up as this good good guy and then they do a similar thing for frank whaley and he's like you know i'm not actually a civilian i was a lieutenant and it's like oh okay well that reveal kind of came out of nowhere and wasn't actually worth anything but cool good for you dude yeah, but, well, at, least, at least he doesn't get jobbed out. He well, stays behind. Exactly. Like, that was kind of my annoyance. It's like, Delroy is playing a colonel, so you'd think he could have taken a couple of disposable, I say that word loosely, guys with him that could just be taken out to demonstrate how good the bad guys are, rather than he gets to kill a couple people, but then he gets filled with holes, like, by some guy with a machine gun, and then somehow that also takes out like i think the tail rotor on the helicopter gets hit and then they just basically go straight into the mountain in front of them like they can't uh, go above it for some reason and that's them gone and it's like it yeah, just feels so anticlimactic for him because yeah. I, I i i can understand if they wanted the helicopter to blow up because it gave them such an advantage against the ones that were just stuck on a train like there's no way they would have lost in that scenario as long as the helicopter was still around what i would have preferred is if the helicopter still went out the same way but instead of uh max getting shot if he'd have jumped out and you know his fate had been left uh with a big question mark and then maybe he'd have shown up at the end and he was actually on the back of the train and you know done something to help at the last minute but you know, we're saying this some 20 years later, yeah. Uh, you know. It's, yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it, too, like I said, is just the fact that it's Delroy Lindo. Like, that guy is a legend. You yeah. know what I mean? That's, that's what... He's a working actor, too, so, like, you know, he took the job, and he adds a lot of gravitas to the character that probably on the written page didn't really have, so... You know, for that, I'm glad he's in the movie, but it's just... Oh, it's always disappointing like an actor who really, like, gets jobbed out without having to do a whole lot but hey he got he got hail onto that train so i guess he he died not in vain <laughs> true true and i mean at the end of the day he technically stopped the nukes as much as hail did because without him 
And like yep. you said, Hale wouldn't have got there, but also they'd have never have been able to get the opportunity to do that because the, the boys up in Washington wanted him to be shipped on a train and sent up there for debriefing. And, you know, Travolta's character would have got to uh, where he wanted to go. Uh, Terry would have probably been killed and the, the nuke might have gone off or they'd have had to pay. So realistically speaking, he was kind of the hero of the story in his own way, but it's just really a shame that he had to die. And I, I can't help but when I when I see things like that, especially when they're older films, I have a friend called Keith. Uh, maybe one day I'll get him on the podcast because he, he does do podcasts himself, but in a very different field. But he um he he points out in a lot of films how unfortunately it is the black guy that had to die. Even though he's the hero, he still had to kind of die just to make sure that the limelight wasn't lost from our, our main white hero, you know? And yeah. uh, once you start having that stuff pointed out to you, like a long time ago, in my case, it's real hard to not notice that stuff. And it's like, yeah, uh, you know, it's like, it, I don't think in this particular film it was that bad, but there are other films where it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, I can see why that ticks you off, you know? Yeah, for sure. But overall, it's a really good film. Like, I'm happy that you suggested watching it. I really enjoyed it. It's surprising, actually, how well this has aged, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I think it aged, has aged wonderfully, actually. I, um, like I said, like, I watched it a couple years ago for the first time in, like, years uh, during the pandemic when there was nothing to do. And I was watching this movie. I was just like so entertained, uh, thrilled by the action. I think the action is always being propelled forward with a lot of movement and not just guys jumping, you know, behind something and shooting and going back behind it and stuff. So there's always, it's unlike, like even the action movies in the 90s aren't quite this skilled for the lower side of budget for like those summer action movies and uh i'm really disappointed that it didn't quite do as well as it did but you know it got us face off uh it got the relationship with travolta and john woo uh to make that movie because i don't think i think face off needed to have them work together on broken arrow to kind of get that trust and that's how they made face off work so well because travolta and him trusted each other and then Nicholas Cage is just a man-man in general that he's he was game to do that particular thing. You know, so I think in the overall filmography of John Woo, it's a pretty important movie, even if it's maybe on the lower end of his action films overall, it's still a very important one. I, I think the problem is is because Face Off was the this massive success that has continued to persist in people's minds for all of these years like uh, there are people that have never stopped talking about it it's constantly one that gets discovered by the next generation of film watchers and nine times out of ten they enjoy it even if they have to say they enjoy it ironically it is still getting watched um but unfortunately broken arrow doesn't have that and i think the reason it doesn't have that is because it's the film that came out before face-off you know it, it gets it doesn't get its share in the spotlight just simply because it has a younger brother that was face off i think if face off hadn't have been the massive hit that it was maybe people would still talk about broken arrow a lot more but yeah it just it just unfortunately gets overshadowed by its brother 
Yeah, and and I think too that I'm hoping that there is now a more reevaluation of it, similar to how Hard Target has kind of gotten a reevaluation, where it's now generally really liked amongst a lot of people. And I've always liked that one, obviously, but the fact that that one is becoming a bigger movie, I'm hoping that people start appreciating Broken Arrow more. I think the the thing is though, Hard Target at the time I think was liked, but then I think it was unliked, and now obviously it's 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 moved into loved. But I think that that had little to do with John Woo and everything to do with Jean Claude Van Damme because I've just basically described most people's relationship with what they think of him as an actor and by extension his filmography. Yes had a very specific point in time when he was huge and before that he was kind of popular but not the biggest and then it all went downhill for a really long time and then he kind of came back around in people's perception and I think because now he's considered uh, an oldie goldie that's why you're seeing this reevaluation of a lot of his films that maybe didn't get the love that they should have maybe don't have the high status that they really have always had i think in action films minds but now they're they're getting looked at again and i think the again broken arrow doesn't have that advantage because christian slater unfortunately just isn't a big a-list star like i think he should have been like you even said like he's really good in the at the action stuff and he does have a solid list of films and characters to his name but they're just not van damme you know and although travolta is a big star i don't think that the general mainstream audience remember him for his action stuff with the exception of face off you know it's more pulp fiction and grease and the random quirky roles he does which this definitely fits into but again i don't think because people didn't have that obsession point with him where they liked him they didn't then they did and you know that love-hate relationship you don't get that oh i'm gonna i'm gonna look through all his films you know yeah that's true but also people should watch it more oh i'm I'm not disagreeing i i like i said i hadn't seen this film in a very long time like i don't think i've seen it since i was a kid or or a teenager however you want to look at it because you know time distorts the longer away it gets but I don't remember this one being in like my top films in terms of action. But when I rewatched it, I was like, why isn't it? Like, I can remember loving most of the John Woo stuff that I've ever seen. And this is a John Woo film. I like John Travolta when he does action stuff. And I like Christian Slater. And like I said, so many people in this film are recognizable faces, even if they're not in the film a great deal. So why isn't this film talked about more? Like there's, there's this, just this weird anonymity to this film that shouldn't exist it's full of yeah. big people it's full of known sure. faces and yet people just do not talk about it well maybe this is ground zero of the new broken arrow movement hey i mean crazier things have happened you know uh it wouldn't be the first film that i've uh largely partitioned to have a bigger following than it does that has the word broken in its name whether you're talking about Broken Arrow or Broken Path, both of them need to be watched more. Yeah, well, fortunately, Broken Arrow is a little bit easier to get a hold of than Broken Path. True. Which which would be nice if that got a release. It won't, unfortunately, yeah. but I would love it. I mean, 
I say it won't. It did have a release, but it was never going to have like a a Blu-ray proper release. Even if like a uh oh, what well, who are they? Uh, even if someone like Gold Ninja Video wanted to, I know for a fact that unfortunately it will never get one. Even if somebody was like, I want to do it, the producer that has the rights to that film is an asshole who just will not let people have the shiny thing that they want. Yeah, well, I'm sure at some point someone's going to offer him the right amount of money. Well, that's the problem is um, unless it's like big money, I just don't think he's ever going to let it go. But we can talk about that off air. But I, I think I think that basically has brought this uh, to a natural conclusion. Yes, I know there's a big gap in the middle, but ultimately, guys, we liked it. We're both going to say you should go and watch it for yourself if you haven't seen it for a while or you've never seen it. Go check it out. It's great. Yeah, definitely see Broken Arrow. Um, also, just remember that uh, John Woo will have a new movie, his first American movie in like a decade, at least. I know. Even like longer than a decade, really. His last American film um, was released in like, 2003, maybe. So he's got Silent Night coming out, and I cannot wait to see what that's going to be. Uh, John Woo's The Goat. You know, I, I even think Manhunt is a really good movie, even though a lot of people seem to hate that for unknown reasons. Like, if if you're not super familiar with John Woo, like, do what you can to find all of his movies because he is the GOAT. And Broken Arrow needs a new reveal evaluation because it is a fantastic action movie. There you go. I, I completely agree. I haven't seen Manhunt, so I can't offer opinion, but I am excited to see Silent Night, um, especially since it's got Joel Kinnaman, who I actually really like, and I'm hoping, you know, gets to be, continue to be in a lot more action stuff. For sure. So, thank you to Larry for joining me. I'm going to throw you back over to myself now to give you the outro, any information that needs to be said, and maybe what's coming next week, if I'm more organized by the time I film the outro than I am right now. Well, you've made it. You've made it to the outro. Told you this was a long one, didn't I? I mean, it's not really. I'd say this is more average than anything. I think if you want a long one, you should go and listen to the Power Ranger episode, because wow, that one still amazes me whenever I see the length of that episode. But, as Larry said in one of the segments I cut out, at least we're not the length of a board game podcast. So, what's next? Well, it is Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage. Yes, a Vin Diesel movie finally graces itself onto this show. It probably won't be the last, but it probably will be the only Triple X film you're going to get a full episode on. Because unlike pretty much every other franchise that I would want to talk about, Triple X is kind of the only one I don't want to really cover the other two films in. Not because I actually think they're that bad, it's just that I'd have to rewatch them in fairness, but compared to The Return of Xander Cage, which has a fantastic cast, a really, really fun tone, and in my opinion, takes the formula that they've kind of turned the Fast and the Furious films into, which is basically a big super spy film with, you know, big set piece action things and uh they just essentially made a triple x film but fast and furious level budget and like 
massively diverse casting from different parts of the globe. And it was really fun. And it's got Vin Diesel and Donnie Yen kicking ass. What more could you ask for? Personally, I would have rather that they'd just kept making more triple X's and stopped trying to shoehorn in car segments in the Fast and Furious films that they so desperately wish they could just make big silly action films. But since they make tons of money, that was never going to happen. Either way, look forward to that conversation and joining me for that particular talk is yet another new voice and it is a voice that you may have heard on other podcasts. It is Chris Barreras, better known as the Action Twitter's Tactical Guy. Yes, I am that crazy person that decided to get someone on the show that is uh, super knowledgeable about realistic warfare tactics and gun control and gun handling and all that good stuff because he's lived it and get him to talk about a film that has absolutely nothing to do with realism and is 100% stylistic, which I am super happy about because he had a blast and had never seen the film before, so look forward to that one. But until then, guys, take care of yourselves and I will see you in the next one. On the Action Addicts Podcast!